Good morning, everyone. My name is Michelle, uh, and I'll be reading the second Bible reading for us, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 63, starting from verse 7 until 64, verse 12. Uh, in your Black Church Bibles, you can find that uh, starting on page 782. Otherwise, uh, please follow along on the screen behind me. Isaiah 63, starting from verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and, re and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways, and harden our hearts so we do not revere you. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your, holy, by your name. O oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin, continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name 
or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become desert. Even Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Well done to all of you for uh, making it this far in the book of Isaiah. Now, I wonder whether you felt so daunted by the prophet Isaiah, such a big book, but I hope you have found it so helpful and useful. It is relevant for us, though written so long ago. It is for us and for the building of our faith. The passage we're looking at this morning is a long prayer of the people of God. And so let's uh, pray that God might help us understand the prayers of his people and how we are to long that God would come too. Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these words, the prayers of your people of past, how they longed for you to come, help us too to long for you to see your power at work in our lives and in our church today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you know how people speak sometimes about the good old days? Ah, I remember the good old days. Anyone think like that or speak like that? Well, if you do, it shows your age. (laughs) I say that quite often to my kids, so I'm showing my age as well. But you know that sense of nostalgia, that sense of how it used to be in the past, how it was so different in the past so easy, so simple, so much slower. I mean, back in my day, there was no rush. When we watched TV, we would happily watch the commercials, and they'll be fine, but not today. Not today. You have to fast forward. You don't even watch TV today. Back in my day, when you catch up with friends, what do you do? You actually catch up with friends, face-to-face, in person, like any real human being. Today, what do people do? Our young folks, it's just all online, typing, chatting away, and they call that friends. The good old days. Yeah, the sense of nostalgia. Now, this past week, I was reading up on the history of our church, the good old days of our church. We've got this centenary booklet uh, written in uh, 1987, 100 years, and I was reading up on what our church was like in the past. Now, do you know that our church used to own tennis courts. Oh, the good old days. Missed out. <laughs> Did you know the block of land on which, so our church blocks on three plots of land, the land on which our church hall was built was purchased in 1888. Any idea how much it was purchased for? $665. $665. Oh, the good old days. 665 today, what would that 
buy you in Surrey. It was probably land this big. The church building itself, this building, uh, it went out for tender in 1909 and it was built in 1910. Guess how much it cost? This big, massive building. $5,000. Oh, the good old days. So cheap back then. $5,000 today, what would that get you? Probably half a kitchen bench, not much at all. But you know that sense of nostalgia, the good old days, how it used to be, that sense of longing, how, how good, how simple, how plain it used to be. But I wonder whether that's how you feel about not just life in general, but also about your Christian walk, your Christian life, how it used to be, how it used to be so good for you, how it used to be so different for you in the good old days where my faith, it wasn't so fickle as it is today, where my life with God was so much simpler, when my zeal and my passion were for the things of God and I was on fire for God in the good old days, or when I could sense the presence of God, understand his will, know his power. But that's long gone. I don't feel it today. I used to. I wonder that's how you might feel about your own Christian walk. Why isn't God the same today as he was back then? Why isn't God displaying his power like he did of old, the good old days? Now you listen to some stories of the past and you could see God was definitely at work. His spirit was moving. You hear wonderful stories of the past. But why is God not like that today? Why isn't he doing something so powerful, manifesting his power like what he did in the past today? You know, you read stories like the great evangelist Billy Graham when he came out to Australia in 1959. He went around Australia, had a big crusade and preached often. Do you know how many people he preached to when he came out in 1959? Just the one man. He preached to about a third of the population of Australia. The population back then was 10 million. He preached to over 3 million people. That is amazing. And you hear stories like that and you think, well, God was at work. The Spirit was moving. Hundreds and thousands of people became Christians. The MCG was filled to record levels, not, not for the cricket, but to listen to Billy Graham. And then it was said that after the crusade, the crusade was responsible for a nationwide drop in crime rates after that. Alcohol drinking dropped after that. And for three years afterwards, there was a falling number of illegitimate births. When you hear stories like that, you wonder, well, what's God doing today? Why aren't we seeing you know, big displays of power like that today? The good old days. Why is it not like that today? And you hear stories like that, you hear lives changed, hearts transformed, and there's this vitality amongst Christians, there's this movement, and it's the undoubted work of God. But where is God today? Will he come down in power like he did in the past, in the good old days? Well, that's the sentiment of this prayer we're reading today. It's what flavours our passage, oh, I wish that God would do what he once did. So let's have a look. Let me encourage you. If you're, if you're new here especially, keep your Bibles, 
grab one of the pew Bibles and open it up to Isaiah 63. Well, here we read of one long prayer, the yearning, the longing of the people of God. And it's a prayer of a desperate, despairing, defeated and shattered people of God. And it is a big prayer. They are praying big here. Next week in the last talk of our series, God answers their prayer, but today we're reflecting on, on their prayer. And here in their prayer, they begin reflecting on how it was in the past, how it was in the good old days. By this time, they've returned to their home, to their promised land. They're not in exile anymore. They're out of Babylon. They're back home, but it just doesn't feel like it. And so there's a sense of nostalgia as you read their prayer. They're remembering the good old days. They're recounting what God had done in the past, what God did, but not anymore. Do you notice that? Look at verse 7. And notice that it's all past tense. I will tell you of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. So, so they sense their nostalgia. What God has done in the past, the good old days. And I wonder whether sometimes we feel like that as well in our Christian walk. That God was so good to us in the past. I mean the time of the Billy Graham crusade. God was so good to Australia back then. And the world of course. The time of the Great Awakening in the 1730s that swept through Britain and all its colonies. God using guys like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. God was so good to so much of the Western world. The revival, the Great Awakening, mass conversions, people, thousands upon thousands, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Or the time of the Reformation in the 1500s. You've got Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and, and many other giants of the Reformation bringing the church back to light, helping people see that Jesus is Lord. God was so good in his display of his power in the good old days. And that's their sentiment here. God was so good to them once upon a time. God came and became their saviour, saved them and redeemed them. They were in distress, and so God came for them. Look at verse 8. He became their saviour. Verse 9. In all their distress, he too, that's God, was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. You see that sense of nostalgia? The good old days. God was working, his spirit was moving, lives were being transformed. And so for the people of God, they reflected, what has God done? That they're always remembering, that they're always recalling. What was the greatest display of the power of God, his great deliverance? Well, it was the great deliverance from Egypt, from slavery, with Moses. It was the great destruction of all their enemies. And it was the splitting of the sea. That's what they recount. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
Then his people record the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, who sent, verse 12, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before him to gain for himself everlasting renown. In the good old days, God showed his power in such mighty ways. And so you can sense as you hear this prayer, the longing of the people of God, that sense of nostalgia. They've come back home, but it doesn't feel like it. Where is God now? And again, I wonder whether that's how we might be feeling today. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, that the time that we're living in today is so different to the past. Our Christian life in the past was going so well. God was evidently at work in my life, directing my path, keeping me from sins, growing my character, deepening my convictions, expanding my hope, and giving me a love that was not my own. But how that just seems like, it's not how it is now. That's not what my life is like. And so where is God now? But now they reflect on the present. How it seems now is terrible. God seems so far and they feel so lost. God just feels so far away. He's far away, far in heaven, high up above everything, on his lofty throne, so distant, so cold. And what do they do? They complain to God. Why don't you love us anymore as they reflect on the present? Look at verse 15. They're saying to God, Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where is your zeal and your might, your tenderness, or more literally, the word there is your inward parts, your intestines, God. Where are your guts that's agitating for us? You see, in the ancient world, the, the, the guts was the seat of emotion, so they complained to God, where is your tenderness, your compassion? Are they withheld from us? Where is your love, God? We felt it, we saw it in the past, we saw your power in the past, but we don't feel it now. We don't experience it now. And again, I suspect that is often the Christian experience as well. It seems like God is so far and distant, and we complain, where is his love? Why is God letting me experience what I'm going through now? Why is he letting me experience so much pain and heartache? Why is it that my heart feels so heavy and sorrowful? Why is it that I can't shake my guilt and shame? And I suspect that is a real feeling for at least some of you this morning. But what did they do? Well, in this prayer we read on, they plead in desperation. They beg, God, don't forget you're our father too. Look at verse 16. But you are, you are our father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. That is, even if our earthly fathers disown us, you can't, God, because you are our father. And he goes on, O Lord, our, our father, our redeemer from old is your name. They're, they're pleading, begging God, don't abandon us. You're still our father, aren't you? You seem so far away, but don't leave us. And not only that, not only does God feel distant, they now feel lost. 
lost in direction, lost in life. But now look at what they say here. They even have the audacity to blame God. They're blaming God for it. Look at verse 17. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do, we do not revere you? You see there, they're blaming God. It's your fault, God, that our heart is so hard. And then they go on. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. Now, isn't that a daring request of God, God Almighty? Will you just come down, God? Will you come, show your power, display your love, return to us? We don't resemble your people anymore. That's what they're saying. Verse 19. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. And so it seems like God is so far. They are lost. Their situa situation is desperate. Their plight is hopeless. And so you can understand why their, their sense of nostalgia, how good it was in the past. And so what do you do? Well, how it was, it was great when God acted in power and showed them love. How it seemed, it seemed terrible. And so how do you hope? Well, look at what they did now. They boldly, shamelessly asked God to do something about it, that God would come down himself. You hear the audacity of that? Don't send us another prophet. Don't send a king. Don't even send an angel. Come down yourself. Tear the skies and come down yourself. Look at 64 verse 1 now. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that is, tear it apart and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Now verse 1 there is often used as a prayer by Christians in the past, a big prayer for revival, that God would rend the heavens and come down and and show his power in glorious way, changing lives, changing hearts. A prayer for revival, for reformation, the changing of lives, the moving of the Spirit of God, that God would come and make himself known in a powerful way. A big, bold prayer. That's what they prayed. And then verse 2. As when fire set twigs alight and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies, and cause the nations to quake before you. In one sense, that's what happened, isn't it, during, during those big revivals, the Great Awakening. Billy Graham, preaching to millions around the world, called many to faith. They trembled when they heard what God has promised, what God has come to do. God came down in a spectacular, powerful way. Now, what do you think about the idea of God coming down? Do you think it's good news or bad news, what they're praying here? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Because they reflect on that. If you're among the righteous, then it's good news if God is to come. But if you're filthy and you've got dirt or even blood on your hands, your conscience is not clear, then that's bad news, terrible news. And that's what they go on to realize. Look at verse 5 now. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? 
How can anyone be saved? They're asking God to come, but now they're fearful. Will God save us anyway? They want God to come, but now they're frightened that God will come in judgment because they know they stand before God guilty. Even their most righteous acts are seen as filthy rags to God. Look at verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. And so now they realize, they prayed a big prayer, God come, render heavens, come down, do your work, show your power, show your love to us. But now they're wondering, is it really a good idea? And so you hear now their desperate plea. Look at verses 8 to 9. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. They recognize God have mercy on us. Come, but come in love. Come in grace. Come in mercy. That's what they're begging. And then our final verse, after all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And so that's their prayer. A desperate plea, isn't it? Will you come in love or judgment? And so in their prayer, they reflect on the past, how it was. It was great. Once upon a time, God displayed his power and love. How it seemed, they're reflecting on their present. It was terrible. The love of God feels so far and distant. And now how it's hoped, it seemed unsure. And the prayer ends with a plea, not knowing how God will answer. But yet they're hoping for the good days of old. And so what will God do? That's how our prayer ends. Will he do as they prayed? Render heavens and come down. Display his power and might and love. Will God come down? Well, on one level, for us now, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can see God's ultimate answer. On one level, God has done that, hasn't he? In the greatest display of power and love and deliverance, greater than what Moses did. In a greater display of glory, he ripped through the heavens, sent down his son to deliver, to redeem, to save, to show love, to show mercy on the cross and to be raised to power again on the resurrection. And the world since then was never the same. And so on one level, their prayer was ultimately answered in the coming of God's own son himself. The heavens were ripped open and God came down. Salvation has come. God has met them in love. It is true. God is for us. And if God is for us, like in our first reading, who can be against us? But yet on another level, like what we've seen in our history, will God render heavens again? Will God come in a, in a great display, a manifestation of his power and love, like what we have seen in the past? Not, not in the sense of sending Jesus down again. That won't happen. Jesus has completed the work of salvation. The next time he returns, it's the last day. It's judgment day. But before that day, will God act 
in some great display of power, showing, like what he did in days of old, bringing mass conversion through the preaching of his word. You reflect on the stories of the Great Awakening in the 1730s. So many were brought to faith. The Second Great Awakening in the 1850s, Spurgeon, so many came to faith. And then you had the Welsh Revival in 1903. It spread like wildfire to Britain, even to India and Africa and China and the United States. And then I was reading our record again. I looked at how big our church was at one time in our history. In the 1960s, do you know how many children we had in our church? How many children came to Sunday school? I mean, it's brilliant what we have today, and praise God for it. You know, 30 or so children. In the 1960s, it was 260 kids at Sunday school. 260 kids would fill up all these pews. The good old days. Why is it not like that again? Can God rend the heavens again and come down in a great display of his love and revival? Because when you consider the state of our nation, reflect on what's been happening in our nation the last 10 years, the last 50 years, the state of our church, there is a sense, at least in the Western world, a sense of despair and desperation and defeatedness, a bit like the prayer in this passage. Some feeling that way then, and some feeling that way today. So many churches continue to decline. It's true across the Western world. Not many are trained up to go into ministry. Uh, recently I spoke to someone and, and they reported all the Bible colleges in Australia have reducing number of students studying, except one up in Queensland. So many churches decline and continue to decline. Speaking to some of you um, older folks, sharing of your friends at some churches where they're just old people, no young people at all, and it continues to decline. We see it over and over again in the Western world. What is happening? It is despair. We, we feel like what this prayer is saying. Many churches ageing, shrinking. Ten people in the church on a Sunday, 20 people. In the big church, one time it was full. Not anymore. And that's really the same across the Western world. And then all the while, in our nation, Australia, once at least nominally Christian, at least once acknowledging that God is God. In our nation, what has come of it? Marriage today in our nation, butchered. Since 1975, the no-fault divorce law destroyed the sanctity of marriage you can get into marriage and get out just as easily same-sex marriage legalized now we see that we know that confusion all over the place abortion euthanasia in order speech about rights but it is far from it the lord's prayer in parliament almost every second year someone's trying to get rid of it Someone's trying to get rid of it. Even now in our state parliament, one-third refused to come during the Lord's Prayer. One-third of the politicians. And so when you look around our churches and you look around our nation, you can see why that prayer means so much to us. That God would somehow rend the heavens, come down, display his power and do something about it. 
I mean, this year marked 60 years since Billy Graham's first crusade. And do you know that earlier this year his son came on another sort of crusade, Franklin Graham? He went around preaching as well. Now, he got to preach to many, many people, 59,000 people. That's a lot of people. 59,000 people hearing the gospel. Brilliant. But it wasn't a third of the nation like his father. The good old days, isn't it? There were people saved this year because of it. Many people saved this year because of it. Even, in fact, two of our youth in our youth group went to it and were converted. But it wasn't the hundreds of thousands 60 years ago. And so, as we reflect on the now and the past, doesn't it make you long again for the good old days that God would do something again? that God will bring revival, change our nation that has turned its back on God. But then this week, something struck me, that God was in fact doing something. God has always been doing something around the world, bringing the gospel to bear on so many lives, and lives are still being changed en masse. At our prayer night on Thursday night when about 60 or 70 of us got together to pray. We prayed for the persecuted churches, the most persecuted churches in the world. Terrible place to be a Christian, to live out a life as a Christian. But I couldn't help noticing how many Christians there are in those persecuted countries. It was unbelievable. India, Christians are persecuted there, but there are 65 million Christians in India. 65 million that's more than double the whole population of Australia. In Nigeria, 91 million Christians. In China, 97 million Christians in China. Okay, can you believe that? That's almost four times the whole population of Australia. And so, as I reflect on the Western world, it seems like oh, so despairing. But God is still so at work powerfully around the world. Between 1900 and 2008, the number of Christians in Africa grew from 9 million to 424 million people. The number of Christians in just about 100 years. That's 10,000 new Christians a day sustained over 100 years. Can you believe that? We look at the Western world and we think, what is God doing? But around the world, God is active. In China, they're averaging even more conversions, 16,500 new Christians per day. In China today, though it's seen as the global center of atheism, sociologists say that by 2030, in China there will be more Christians than there are in the United States. By 2030. By 2060, sociologists say that China will be a majority Christian country. Can you believe that? In South Korea, they've now become the country to send out more missionaries per capita than any other country. That's South Korea. Today, the global shift of Christians has moved from the West to Africa, Asia, Latin America. When we reflect on our part, it looks like, what is God doing? But God is active. God is working. And this gospel is bringing people to salvation. But as we reflect on that, don't we long 
for something of this prayer for us, for our nation. Not just reflecting on the good old days, but recognizing that God can and continues to work, continues to work in the world in powerful ways. And he does continue to work in us and through us and for us as well. Though not the yet big great revival of the past, God still works. And so this way got me reflecting how is God working amongst us? Not big, massive conversions. But as I reflected on our church and what we've been doing, God is working. And it is a joy and a great encouragement to see. Each week we have 20, 30, 40 kids being taught about Jesus. And hopefully they'll go on from generation to generation. You saw the video of the youth group, a brilliant group of leaders caring for the youth, discipling them. It is encouraging and so exciting to see. Each week there are about 40 students who come to the ESL, not just to learn about English, but many eager to hear about Jesus. Many of our young ones, I love hearing these stories, who amongst their friends at work or at uni, they catch up one-to-one to read a gospel. In a few weeks' time, we'll have someone in our evening service share her profession of faith. She became a Christian at our church last year. No massive revival, but we're seeing God at work because lives are being changed. And so I started getting us to think about the good old days, you know, that nostalgic feeling. Well, no need, right? Because we know the answer to the end of the prayer, don't we? Verse 12. What did they ask? O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And what's the answer? Well, God certainly has not. In the face of Jesus Christ, God has not kept silent and God has come to us in love and salvation. Let's pray.